This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to atcmedia.org. Today, our author is documentary filmmaker and writer of books about Hollywood history, Robert Matson. We spoke with him as he was on tour in November of 2019 with his book, Dutch Girl, Audrey Hepburn and World War II by publisher Goodnight Books. Robert Matson was working on his second book in the mid-2010s about Hollywood actors during World War II when he learned that Audrey Hepburn actually lived in German-occupied the Netherlands throughout the conflict. It had been believed that she'd been part of the Dutch resistance during that time, but Robert, ever the documentarian, couldn't find any definitive writings that could confirm that or much about her life during that time. The reason? Her parents' pre-war sympathies and activities. Even with press questions at the time, they yielded nothing. Because she wouldn't talk about it, and because while she was alive, certainly no one dared talk about the fact that her parents were, were Nazis. And... Uh, when I stumbled upon this topic, I, I was working on a book on Jimmy Stewart in the 8th Air Force, and I stumbled upon the fact that Audrey was in Arnhem in the Netherlands through the war. Well, that's pretty interesting, but nobody had written a book about that. Now, why? It was because she wouldn't talk about it. But later, he was able to connect with the sons of Audrey Hepburn and spend a great deal of time in the Netherlands to unearth the details of the decades-hidden subject and write about it himself first to his amazement. We'll learn about some of these details, how they were gotten, and how Audrey Hepburn's life as a child in a war zone led her to support children suffering in conflicts around the world as an adult in our conversation with filmmaker and writer Robert Matson on this edition of Talking with Authors from ATC Media and ATC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Paul Shankman. Well, Robert Matson, welcome to St. Louis. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So, Dutch Girl, we were just having a little discussion in the studio before you arrived, and I thought maybe I was the only one. But I'm obviously not. Audrey Hepburn was Dutch. I think at least I assumed she was British. Audrey was born in Belgium and uh, she spent her first few years in Belgium. And then she ended up in England where she was educated in elementary school, basically. And so she was there for until the age of 10, which is why she has a kind of a British accent. Then she went to the Netherlands in 1939 at the end of the year. Um, because it was safer in the Netherlands because Hitler wasn't going to invade the Netherlands. That was the theory. And so she became a Dutch girl. Yeah, so 1939, her whole world changed. Yeah, well, Europe's, Europe's the whole world changed. <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, Hitler had invaded Poland in September of 1939, and, uh, and that began a conflict with France and England and Germany. And um, pretty soon, Hitler invaded the, the low countries, of which um, the Netherlands is probably the lowest of them. And so all of a sudden, Audrey, at age 11, is under occupation in the Netherlands, where she would spend the entire war. Hitler, I assume, thought he'd get very little resistance in the Netherlands? 
Yeah, and they put up a pretty good scrap, even though, um, you know, they surrendered in a matter of days, but they bloodied the Germans. The German army now has this sort of invincible, um, you know, vibe about it. But really, when, when the Germans threw themselves at a country, it was just... Every, they threw everything at it. It wasn't like they had, you know, grand armies waiting in the background. So it really, it took all their resources to go through the Netherlands into France. And, and they got bloodied and that they had to sort of recover from that. And I, I, th- I always thought that was very interesting that now we have, you know, the might of the German army. Well, they really, they really stretched themselves to the limit. Well, and really a discussion of Audrey Hepburn in World War II has to begin with her mother and, and Nazis because there was a, a connection there. Yeah, and uh, that's where I start the narrative was with her mother, Ella von Heemstra. She's one of the Dutch von Heemstras in an aristocratic family. Um, and she was sort of the black sheep of the family and she was enamored of Hitler. She met Hitler in his office uh, and and it created a problem that Audrey would have, you know, this, this burden that Audrey would lug with her the rest of her life, that her mother had been a Nazi sympathizer. Her father, Joseph Rustin, was a Nazi agent who was arrested when war broke out with England and put in prison for the entire war. You know, that's quite a burden for somebody. Well, but her, her and her mother met Hitler, what, about 35 or something like that? When he was, you know, Times cover... Uh, yeah, it was yeah. on the cover of Time at one point. I mean, Total it, it was a different. Star. It was a different time. Yeah, you know, there was no such thing as a Holocaust. There was no such thing as Kristallnacht and and the invasion of this, you know, Czechoslovakia and all these invasions. No, you know, he had just brought the the German people out of the Great Depression. He was the first world leader, you know, to conquer the depression, and so he was just like on everyone's lips. And so when you were in Hitler's office and met Hitler, you know, that was. You know, that was total street cred. He was a, a rock star, not to put too fine a point on it, but... Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So she had to deal with that the rest of her life, really. Yeah, and, and that's why nobody had written a book about it, because she wouldn't talk about it. And because while she was alive, certainly no one dared talk about the fact that her parents were, were Nazis. And, uh, and so... Um, when I stumbled upon this topic, I, I was working on a book on Jimmy Stewart in the 8th Air Force, and I stumbled upon the fact that Audrey was in Arnhem in the Netherlands through the war. Well, that's pretty interesting, um, but nobody had written a book about that. Now, why? It was because she wouldn't talk about it. Which is sort of astounding. I mean, I guess it's understandable since she wouldn't talk about it, but you had mentioned somewhere along the line that there's something like a thousand titles of material if you go and look up Audrey Hepburn on Google. Uh, it would seem like there was nothing left to, to say or to write about, but you certainly found something. I did, and I can't believe it was me. I can't believe I got to do it. You know, And I, I feel that way about so many things that you know, biographers sort of tripped over this thing that, oh, well, she, she lived through World War II. Well, that's not very interesting. You know, and then they would go and write about Breakfast at Tiffany's or whatever. So you know, I, I had this whole you know, rich vein of material to go access. But the truth is there's another word there. She barely lived through World War II. That's a great point, you know. There are any number of times when she almost died, you know. She could have been strafed by a British Spitfire. She talks about one incident where um, she's walking down the main street of her town, Vellop, which is right near Arnhem, 
and it was the main east-west route where the German army came through. So it was always under attack. And the only way she got saved on that particular day was that somebody, probably a German soldier, shoved her under a tank as the bullets stitched past. You know, that's just one time. And uh, she was arrested by the Green Police, which is the same police that arrested Anne Frank and her family. And she was going to be sent to Berlin, you know, as kitchen help. And she escaped or she would have been in Berlin for the Soviet advance, you know, on the final days of the war. So, and then she lived through the hunger winter. So it's a miracle in a way when you, when you add it all up. We began by saying that there's this misconception perhaps by some people that she was actually British. Uh, I suppose that people also think of her more as an actress, but she thought of herself more as a dancer. Yeah, she was a, a dancer through... The course of her life, if you wanted to talk about her acting and you wanted to give her accolades about her acting, she would say, I'm not an actress or, you know, you're being very kind, but, you know, I'm a dancer. And that's where she started in Arnhem. She became the most famous ballerina in Arnhem. Um, and then, you know, I guess we will start talking about the resistance at some point, but she danced for the resistance. You know, when she couldn't dance publicly anymore, she danced privately and raised money for the resistance. Yeah, let's let's pick that up a little bit because it's it's an interesting story. How did she come to dance for the resistance? And I would imagine that was uh, pretty risky. It was risky. I guess I should I will tell you the spoiler. Okay, her her uncle was shot by the Nazis. He was executed. He was a, a district attorney in Arnhem, and he was executed, and that changed the dynamic in the family. And uh, and it set everyone against, even Ella, her mother, by this point, had turned against the Nazis. And so um, Audrey and her, and her family met a, a very charismatic doctor in the town that she lived in who was a resistance leader. And he recruited Audrey to start doing things on behalf of the resistance. And that got her into it. And she did any number of things, the most important of which was to dance and raise money for people in hiding who were mostly Jews who were hiding all over Velp, all over the Netherlands. But they had to be fed and clothed, and that's what Audrey could contribute. Well, and if it's not too much of a spoiler, uh, you mentioned Anne Frank uh, a little while ago. There's, there's a connection there in this story. There are a number of connections between Audrey Hepburn and Anne Frank. Um, they spent the war 60 miles apart, 100 kilometers, you know, Audrey in Arnhem and Anne in Amsterdam. Um, they were both arrested by the Green Police. They both spent the war like dodging the Green Police and staying out of trouble. And, and of course, the Frank family was, was you know, hiding away for years, 22 months or whatever. Um, they were both arrested by the Green Police. And Anne and her family were taken away and only one survived. Right after the war, Audrey and her mother moved to Amsterdam where Audrey could pick up her ballet career again. And they happened to live in the same apartment building as the editor who was working on Het Ochterhaus, which was the diary. And Audrey read the diary before it was published. And it, and, you know, it devastated her because all of a sudden she's got survivor's guilt on, you know, on top of everything else. And, um, and then later in life had the opportunity to play her in the movie but chose not to. Exactly. That's 10 years later. You know, flash forward 10 years and, and Otto Frank, the only survivor, asks Audrey personally, you know, courts Audrey, looks her in the eye, please play my daughter in a movie. She says, no, I can't do it. You know, I can't take money for it. I can't relive the war. Don't ask me to do it. And she didn't do it. And it wasn't until another 
30 years, she finally performs in public some portions of the diary, and that's to raise money for UNICEF. If she wouldn't talk about this, and it doesn't sound like the sort of thing that there would be a lot of records of, how in the world did you find all this out? Well, because um, I assume most of the people who were alive at the time are also not around anymore. Right. And it, really, it was the children. It was the people about her age who were left in Arnhem and Vellup that I could talk to. And I sat down with them, and they really opened my eyes to you know how brutal it was there, especially around the Battle of Arnhem, the Bridge Too Far battle where 10,000 British paratroopers you know drop on everybody's heads and start this tremendous battle that's a terrible defeat for the British. Um, I interviewed a number of those people, and I also went into the archives, the National Dutch Archives, where there is a secret police file on Ella von Heemstra, which was critical. And so I had those things. I, I spent a lot of time in the Netherlands on the ground doing this research, and then I got hooked up with Audrey Sanluca, and he filled in blanks for me. I filled in blanks for him. You know, we, we formed this sort of partnership, and and we're kind of like brothers now, and it's really that part's very cool. He writes the, the foreword of the book, and it's very touching. Um, you were finding out things that he didn't even know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's why he was very anxious to meet me and to read the manuscript because, you know, he he had a, a project he was working on at the time about his mother, and uh, and my research turned out to be very critical, and it was just this synergy that boy I didn't expect, and I guess he didn't expect, and and everything has come together pretty nicely. She clearly didn't talk about it publicly, but was it something she even talked about privately with him? Yeah, she talked to both sons about the war quite a bit. You know, lessons you can learn, my son, you know, um, and it's really all about the war. And he said he made a, a big point of that, that, that she wouldn't tell stories about Hollywood when she wanted to make a point about doing the right thing and, you know, growing up the right way. She, she talked about the war. You know, that's the thing that was the most important time of her life. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from Robert Matson and how he was able to connect to Audrey Hepburn during World War II through a connection with one of her sons and research in the Netherlands. We'll also hear more about her post-Hollywood life when she could devote more time paying for the help that she received from the UN as a child of war by working with them as an adult. Once she became involved with UNICEF, you know, UNICEF thought they were going to get this pretty face. And what they got was a badass soldier who insisted on going into war zones, you know, civil wars, you know, dangerous conditions on all of these missions. And she insisted on going in there because there were children who were like her, who were victims of wars started by adults. That and a reading from the book Dutch Girl by Robert Matson, when talking with authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. And I suppose anybody in their right mind would want to hide the fact that their parents had some connections with the Nazis, but particularly for an actress, in Hollywood, that would have been a, a career ender. I assume she was not only not talking about it, but was probably terrified someone would find out. Yeah, but it wasn't, you know, she never had this film career focus, really. What she had was a, a need to protect her mother, family, honor, you know. Even though 
she despised what her mother had done and what her mother had been. She still felt the duty to protect her. And she did that, you know, remarkably well through the course of her mother's life and then through those last years when her mother was gone, she still wouldn't talk about it. And really didn't until, you know, ever. Ever. It's been very painful for her. Was it the sort of thing, I mean, it's almost like PTSD that followed her through her life, uh, thinking back on these memories? Very strong, very strong, you know, indications of PTSD, yes. You know, and, and her son, Luca, talked about that quite a bit when we were in the Netherlands a couple months ago, you know, that certain sounds would get to her. You know, um, uh, certain smells would get to her. You know, she would be all of a sudden she would be back in the middle of the war. You know, you know, she would have to run out of the room, that kind of thing. So, yeah. And there were nightmares. And she talked about the nightmares of seeing Jewish faces in cattle cars, you know. So, yeah, a lot of PTSD type activity. What was it like trying to get this information and find the right people? Because I gather the Dutch are sort of a rather stoic bunch. Here comes this American waltzing in saying, hey, tell me about Audrey. Uh, it, was it, it took a little while to get folks to open up, I would imagine. It's a great question. You know, it's one of the reasons why when um, my, my foreign rights agent would shop this book around at the world, it got picked up here and there, no problem. But the Dutch, they didn't want anything to do with an American author. You know, they, this is a Dutch story that should be told by a Dutchman. But I'm sorry, I did it. They had 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> if they hadn't gotten to it by now. Yeah, it's fair game. So um, it, it's really, uh, once these people know you, they're very suspicious at first, but once they know you and accept you and, and understand, you know, get your vibe and it's okay, then, then it's fine. I have Dutch family there. There are people there now who my wife and I are just crazy about, and they're crazy about us. I mean, it's just become a family situation, and that's, you know, I think that's just the nature of Audrey Hepburn and what, how positive she was, what her outlook was. And this project has been so positive. And so, you know, it's been a joy for everybody, I think. You learned to, to speak some Dutch, right? I did, a bit of Dutch, um, but it was always embarrassing. Just enough to be courteous and make an effort, but not enough to really converse yeah, with yeah, somebody. Yeah, really. To say, but sometimes that's all it takes. To say, I respect you. I respect your culture. I respect your language. Um, but they just laughed at me or they just said, what? You know, just speak English. That's what they did. You mentioned briefly about the, the hunger that she went through in that one particular winter that also stuck with her the rest of her life, not only mentally, but physically. Yeah. The last winter of the war, after the Battle of Arnhem, the... The Germans cut off food to the entire Netherlands, and it created a, a dire situation of famine. You know, like 20,000 people died. Audrey developed anemia, edema, asthma, these serious health problems, and was in, you know, weeks, within weeks of being, uh, if not dead, then gravely ill. In fact, a lot of the people I talked to who were her age, you know, had to be sent out of the country after the war you know, to be seriously hospitalized where they're in like Sweden, uh, where facilities were better. That's how bad it was. And she had uh, stretch marks on her ankles her entire life from the swelling of the edema that had worked its way up her legs. Well, she was always pretty thin, too. Is that any kind of result of this, do you think? She had a very um, uneasy relationship with food after the war, you know, and there are studies that people in that situation never quite 
regulate themselves again. You know, uh, she would put on a lot of weight, then she would have to lose a lot of weight, and 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 that messed her up. And then it, suddenly it's the 1960s, and she's she's forced. She's found that the only way to really control it, to control her weight for the films and whatever, is to eat you know one piece of wheat bread and one cup of yogurt and three strips of uh, asparagus, and and that would be her food for the day. You know, and so she never quite got it right. And then the lower GI tract is where the cancer developed. You know, is it a coincidence? I can't prove it one way or the other, but it's, it's interesting. But your sense is that that may be what killed her. Yeah, that it was the war that finally, you know, the bullet found her after 45 years. It did have some positive influence on her life, or at least influenced her to make positive changes in other people's lives through her work through, through UNICEF. It's all of a piece, right? It's all tied together. Absolutely. So the war ends, and it's uh, the UNRRA, which is the precursor to UNICEF, brings food in and clothing and whatever. And Audrey sees that and benefits from it, and and she pays it forward, you know? It took her a long time. Once she was through with her career, it was always with her. There are, there are little UNICEF things that she did, I think, going back to, you know, years before her official involvement. And, and yeah, she, um, she demanded, once she became involved with UNICEF, Lucas said to me, you know, UNICEF thought they were going to get this pretty face. And what they got was a badass soldier who insisted on going into war zones, you know, civil wars, you know, dangerous conditions on all of these missions. And she insisted on going in there because there were children who were like her, who were victims of wars started by adults. And was she also, at that point, kind of fearless because of her experience? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, she was fearless because, not because of her experience so much, as because of the need at the other end. You know, the children are there. I don't care what color they are, whatever. They need me, and that's where I'm going. You, if I understand it correctly, sort of stumbled into this story because you've been involved with this, the Hollywood trilogy, I guess it's called. I don't know if that's how it actually started out or if it just ended up three and said, okay, that's great. We got a trilogy. But this was actually came out of a book about uh, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. So I was, that's, I was in the Netherlands for that. And, um, and I had done one before that on Carol Lombard's plane crash in, in Las Vegas. And she was on a war bond tour right after the war started. So, um, so yeah, it's, it, you're exactly right. I don't even know what you call it when you have four books. You know, it's a quad something, a G, I don't know. But trilogy's got a nice ring to it, and I ran out of good story, so it became a trilogy. So if you find another one, you just have to pass it off to somebody else? Yeah, yeah, or trilogy plus one, I guess. You, but you enjoy writing about that period in particular and about Hollywood in particular. Yeah, uh, I'm a Hollywood guy. Uh, I'm a history guy. My dad gave me both things. Um, it's all his fault. And, um, and, and I have been very fortunate to find these stories that, that nobody had told but were so richly dramatic and, and needed to be told. And, and I just follow that. Well, there's the additional hook uh, that it's somebody famous that people think they know and they didn't know this whole side of their life that's so fascinating. Yeah. And when you, when you get to Audrey, you know, that's the gold standard. You know, all of a sudden you've got you know, People Magazine doing a cover story on your book, and you've got Fox News wanting you national, taking you, you know, picking you up in a car and making you up for 45 minutes, which, of course, I needed. Um, but, 
it's hard now. What do you do next? How do you follow Audrey Hepburn? What are you going to do, Louis Hayward, or I, I don't even know. You know, so that's the the curse of it. That's the downside. Well, especially when you're picking people that so much has been written about and a war on top of it has been you know written and written and written about for decades to think that there's anything left to uncover, and yet you did. Well, yeah. When when this thing was ready to go to press. You know, my publicist said, well, not only, you know, do you have Audrey Hepburn, but you've got World War II, which is really hot right now. And I'm like, okay. I mean, it's just timing has just come together very nicely on this one, you know, even more so than the others. Well, it's a really competitive landscape out there in publishing, probably even more now than ever. It is. You know, it's it's almost impossible to get noticed out there. And so, yeah, this has been just a terrific year. Was this the most difficult of the trilogy to, to research and write? Yes. Yes, because, you know, it's it's the international part of it. You you know, it's you have to go overseas and, and everything, all of the key documents were in Dutch. You know, uh, it's it's to my benefit that many of the Dutch peoples, most of them speak English, at least passing. But the Dutch documents was a challenge. Um, getting access to those documents was a challenge. Are they, I know they were reticent at first. Are many of them grateful now that the story has finally been told? Yeah. When, the, when Dutch Girl launched its Dutch edition in September, it was a national event. You know, it was on national television, um, national radio, the newspapers, all over. It, it was really big, and there, were, there was a commemorative event at the site of her house. Uh, Luca and I were there to unveil a statue that was inspired by the book, so... <laughs> Those were good times. Now, she has two sons. Uh, the other son is shown by another father, Mel Ferrer, as I recall. That's right. Uh, who was not especially cooperative with the book. Is that correct? That's correct. He, um, when you start page one with his grandmother shaking Hitler's hand, you know, that's all he wanted to read, and that was it. And, and I respect that. Uh, it's a secret that he felt he needed to continue to protect on behalf of his mother. But, and luckily, Luca felt differently. Had others tried to tell the story, approached her or approached Luca or, or Sean to try to get the story out there earlier? Um, no. Uh, the best biography I've seen of her is by Barry Paris. It was completely authorized. You know, he had full access to the family and he had a researcher on the ground in the Netherlands. But if you're not there, you know, if you're not, you know, pounding the pavement actually there, you can't get that much access. I don't know that 20 years ago that Sean or Luca was ready for this story to be told, but Luca now is. So the combination of me actually being there and uh, finding what I did find, which proved to him that I was serious, I was a meticulous researcher, I could be trusted to tell the story the right way, you know, that got Luca on board, I think. And, and so, so, yeah, I was the first. By being so meticulous, did you find that a lot of the biographies that had been written about her before actually had erroneous information? Bingo. Almost every page of the past books had things wrong, you know, because one would believe what, you know, they would build upon this false foundation of research. And, and yeah, there were a lot of, of um, sort of legends that had sprung up that really weren't based in fact. Was she proud of what she had done? I know she didn't talk about it much, but... Did Luca have a sense that she was proud of what she had done? He told a story that had not been published anywhere, um, that after the Battle of Arnhem, one of the Tommies, one of the British paratroopers, was hidden in the cellar of their home for a week. 
the resistance put him there, trusting that the family would take care of him. That was the proudest moment of her war. She was more proud of that than delivering messages to downed airmen, than dancing for the resistance, than delivering the resistance newspaper. It was having that liberator in her cellar that was the biggest thing to her. And that just says to me, she was very proud of working for the resistance and doing the right thing in the war. Just one last question. Uh, because she was so reticent to talk about it, do you ever ask yourself what she would think about the fact that now that she's gone, that this story is coming out? That was asked of Luca uh, and me in, sitting in Velp at the book launch there. And I gave a, you know, a, an answer that was just me talking. But then Luca said she would say it was okay because this was the right way to tell it. You know, it wasn't sensational. Um, it was like, this is the time. She, he, he honestly felt, I mean, he feels the spirit of his mother pretty closely. And he felt that um, she would think it was for the good, that the world needs to hear this now. Well, and thanks to you, the world is. Robert Matson, thanks very much. Thank you, Paul. Robert Matson on finally putting the true story of Audrey Hepburn's World War II experience out into the world. Now, to close out our podcast, we'll listen to Robert once again as he reads a passage from his book, Dutch Girl, on the subject of Ms. Hepburn keeping the real tale hidden for so long. Maney and Goodman knew just how to spin Audrey's war stories to maximum benefit. Because Ella had already helped her daughter clean up the record, and because Audrey had spent her life as a private, introverted person, it came natural to her to keep the record straight. Publicity surrounding Gigi would serve as precedent that followed Audrey to Roman Holiday and then Ondine on Broadway and on through her career in the 1950s and 60s. False trails about where and when she performed during the war would be laid here for all Hepburn biographers to contend with, especially in the spate of books that appeared after the actress's death in 1993. But Audrey quickly became adept at throwing writers off the scent as well. When she sat down with famed columnist Hedda Hopper for an interview in Los Angeles on 11 September 1953, one of Hedda's first questions was, All right, now tell me all about yourself. Audrey smiled her charming smile and replied, There's so little to tell. That's filmmaker and author Robert Matson reading from his book, Dutch Girl, Audrey Hepburn and World War II by publisher Goodnight Books when we spoke with him in November of 2019. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking With Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to atcmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking With Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and editor of the video version of this program was Paul Shankman. Photography was by Peter Foggy and Ken Calcaterra. Audio by Paul Langdon. Graphics by Jane Ballou and Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Christina Chastain. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Special thanks to the St. Louis Jewish Book Festival. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. 
You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.